Why is this year different from all other years? The coronavirus. While you may not be able to physically gather around the Seder table this Passover, at least you won't have to scramble for a Haggadah. The Wandering is Over Haggadah from JewishBoston.com is available now as a free download, whether you're celebrating virtually with family or planning a Seder for one. Our Haggadah is available in two formats, a colorful PDF and a printer-friendly Word document that you can easily customize. Next year, in person. Until then, visit JewishBoston.com slash Haggadah. Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Dan Seligson and I'm joined by my co-host Miriam Anzevin. The COVID-19 pandemic has altered life in profound ways for all of us. For the Jewish community, the approaching Passover holiday presents a unique challenge. It's a holiday that calls us together in our homes to retell the story of the exodus from Egypt. The Seder meal is often multi-generational bringing together old and young, neighbors, strangers, and friends alike. This year, due to social distancing, the look and feel of seders will be a lot different than past years. As Jews, our instinct is to gather in troubled times. The coronavirus requires us to be apart, at least physically. How are various Jewish communities finding ways to be together, if only in spirit, amid the pandemic, and specifically during Passover? How are people finding meaning? and remaining hopeful and connected during this particularly challenging time. On this episode, we're discussing these issues with two thought leaders who are working with Jewish communities across Greater Boston amid the pandemic. Mark Baker is the CEO and president of Combined Jewish Philanthropies. Amy Schechtman is the president and CEO of Two Life Communities, an organization which houses low-income elderly residents in Greater Boston and is inspired by the Jewish values of honoring parents, welcoming the stranger, and repairing the world. Amy and Mark, thank you so much for being with us today on The Vibe of the Tribe. Thank you. I'm honored to be included on this. Yeah, we're glad to be part of it. So, Amy, you work with a population that is particularly vulnerable. These are people mostly over 60 who potentially face a vastly greater risk of complications from coronavirus. You are, in a very real sense, a leader on the front lines right now. Can you tell us a bit about Two Life Communities and how you usually work, and then walk us through what is changing for you on a day-to-day basis um, on the situation on the ground? Sure. Thanks. The Two Life Communities, we pride ourselves in what we call aging in community, which means that every older adult can live a full life of connection and purpose in a dynamic, supportive environment. And we're responsible for creating those dynamic, supportive environments. And so every day, life is rich and engaged and connected. Um, and that is, that's just a beautiful part of our lives. We have so many different programs that everyone can find their way into the community. So it might be the chess club might only have 12 members, whereas the chorus might have 50, but everybody can find their way in. And that's a really important part of how we, how we do our work. And we say that no one should ever have to be alone and no one 
ever have to be alone because you have privacy in your own apartment, but you come down and you connect with staff and with other residents. Everything's changed. The only thing that hasn't changed is we're a really supportive, loving community, and we retain that characteristic. So it's been a sequential set of decisions. At first, we didn't stop our programming. We just um, put it all in bigger rooms and had six-foot distance between every participant. But as this virus has grown and the spread has been so scary, um, we, we stopped on-site programming. We do have videos, so there you can do our exercise program at home, and you can listen to some talks, but let's face it, that's the best we can do, but it isn't really great. We've also taken upon ourselves that staff call all our residents. We did an initial call two weeks ago and have a massive spreadsheet. We asked them what they need, what they want, including would you like to receive calls from volunteers as well as staff so that people who don't have family who are calling them regularly, we have a series of deployed volunteers as well as staff to call them regularly. And just to be clear, um, you mentioned our folks are over 60. Well, almost everyone in our community is over 70, and 35% are over 85 years old. So this is really the high, high risk population. We've had to close the building to visitors, which feels terrible. Um, but all our public health documents that we're hearing about tell us that that's what we have to do. So the only people coming into the buildings now are essential service personnel, you know, for people who need help getting dressed or that. We also just started a new program as of today, actually. Um, normally, food is optional and it's only really available at two of our sites. Um, but as of today, we're offering meals to every one of our residents that we're dropping at their doorstep for free. Um, so we had to ramp up from about 150, 200 meals a day to 1,200 meals a day. Yeah. We're done. So we're getting that out. Our goal is so that people won't leave to go to a grocery store. We've also assembled um, personal items, toothpaste, hairbrushes, uh, soap. I, I don't remember the exact list, but, but the list that we got from residents of what they might need so that they won't go to stores and we'll just provide them for free. So we're we have a massive deployment. Um, and I will say everyone does feel well taken care of. They know we're calling them. They know we care about them. And that when they need things, we arrange for them to have those things. But I wish we could be doing it in person. And um, it's been a big stress on the staff who cares. In fact, um, I just hired a, well, actually, she decided to do it pro bono, a social worker. To work with our front, literal frontline staff. I feel like I'm on the frontline, but I'm not in the same way um, because we we're having group therapy sessions to support our staff members. We're also having twice a week guided meditation sessions, and um, our fitness team did a special video for staff exercising at home. So we're trying to support our people who are doing the direct support, but it's it's intense. So, uh, Mark, along those lines, uh, you are also navigating an unprecedented time for CJP and CJP's 125 year history. There's really never been anything like this. How have your priorities for the organization shifted or morphed because of the pandemic? Well, let me just start by saying the obvious, which is, Amy, thank you so much. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm a little choked up when you said no one should have to be alone. That's your mantra. And, uh, the idea that 
so many people, especially those living in two-life communities, um, have to be alone during this time, at least physically, is just heartbreaking. And I also want to say you are a reminder of all of the healthcare workers, the social workers, the people who are literally on the front line. We should be thanking them multiple times a day, directly and in our hearts. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Because everything we do at DJP is simply an attempt to lift up what you and so many others are doing day in and day out. Um, and I also just want to quickly say, Amy didn't say this, but you know, there's a lot of places where you can age safely, but not necessarily in community and not necessarily with such extraordinary dignity. Uh, and oftentimes um, how people age is a, is a matter of haves and have nots in our society. And what Two Life Communities is, is a national model of what it means for anyone, regardless of, of means, to be able to age with dignity and in community. We are so proud that uh, you're one of the jewels in the crowd of Greater Boston, both Two Life and your leadership team. So thanks. Um, look, uh, you know, in some ways, this crisis uh, is an illustration of what CJP has always been and why we've always been. Um, you know, back in uh, 1895, in the face of uh, its own version of crisis with a new immigrant community and fledgling organizations and charities that could barely figure out how to raise the resources to support um, th these new immigrants. Um, the first federated charities in the country was formed here in Boston, uh, and it wasn't called CJP yet, but it was CJP. Um, and for 125 years old, you know, at the heart of our mantra is um, we are one community where no one falls through the cracks. Um, over the years and the generations, that's morphed and changed in the face of different realities. But, you know, in so many ways, Dan, you asked the question, how have our priorities changed? In some ways, it's how does this crisis take you back to what matters most and what has always mattered most? And I would say, um, you know, when times are good and, and things feel normal, quote, normal, um, you know, you can uh, focus on other things and let your mind wander and sometimes even let your priorities wander. And for me, these last few weeks have really been about a laser focus um, on kind of what matters most. For CJP, um, we've defined those as kind of three core things. One, first and foremost, apropos of this conversation, uh, caring for and supporting our most vulnerable populations. Two is uh, really looking at our ecosystem of institutions. Obviously, Two Life Communities is one of them, but we have human service institutions, educational institutions, cultural institutions, the network of hundreds of institutions, I should say, network that really serve our community every day. They, that, that is, that's the ecosystem. And as we know, it's, it's fragile right now. Um, and then third, of course, which is a little bit more aspirational, is, is how do you keep investing in, promoting, highlighting, um, creating, connected, inspired Jewish life in a time of social distancing? Um, and we've been working with partners across this community to find new and, and kind of innovative ways to keep people connected um, in all sorts of ways to one another um, and to Jewish life. So this is a question for both of you. Uh, I'm wondering what you've observed about maybe your staff and your programs and the people that you serve and what you've learned during these first few weeks of social distancing, which now I hear could be lasting eight to 12 more weeks. Well, I, I don't know if I learned it because I would have predicted it, but our team has risen to this occasion in a way that um, I wish I could put them on national television. It is amazing. Everyone is putting their heart and soul. 
people whose jobs they can't completely do came to us and said, so what else can I do then? Because I'm home and I can't do this in the building, but can I make calls? Can I order supply? Can I? And everyone has just come together in a really powerful way, although it also means that everyone is feeling the stress. And so that's why I have to bring in these social worker resources. Um, I mean, I, I don't mean this, but in some ways I wish people didn't care that much because they're devastated by every every call that they make. If someone says, I'm lonely, I'm sad, they, they take it personally. And so there's a lot of angst. But we are supporting each other really, really well. And um, people are just, everyone, I wouldn't say they come out from the woodwork. I guess they, they just have... Um, they're just, everyone is asking, what can they do? How can they help? And um, they've just dove in full steam ahead. Really wonderful. Yeah, that does not surprise me uh, in talking about your staff um, at all. Um, and I think this is one of the blessings that both of us have working in kind of not-for-profit, mission-driven organizations where we know every day our people get up and, and, and come to work, not just because it's a job, but because it's a, in some ways a college. Um, that has not surprised me about my staff either, who are just um, finding new ways to support one another, uh, creating the kind of culture that has always made CJP what it is in, in new in creative ways. I would say that we've learned that people maybe are even more adaptable than they realize they are. You know, we're living in a world where we all need to be more nimble, more adaptable. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we talk about it, but until you have to do it, you sometimes don't even know what you're capable of. Uh, the number of people in our organization who, if you said you have to go remote, would have said it'll take me weeks, it'll take me months, and have not missed a beat um, because of this, because they know that we, both CJP and CJP, the entire community, is relying on them, is really um, incredible. Um, and I would just want to extend it because because CJP is really not only we have an incredible staff, we're also in some ways a platform for volunteer engagement, and we do our work in partnership with so many volunteers. I would extend that to uh, just hundreds and hundreds of volunteers throughout this community who are just ready to step up, ready to advise, uh, you know, want to be put to work. Obviously, one of the challenging things right now is the traditional models of volunteering in a world of social distancing also have to change. But any hour of the day, um, on Zoom, on phone calls, just people want to get back and... Um, this is certainly revealing the character of our community right now. And we feel it. We really feel supported by CJP. It's been fantastic. Um, it has been one of the things that keeps us going because it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like stuff is flying at you every single day. Well, today, you know, and to feel like we have partners and that we can trust um, really makes a big difference at this point in time. Yeah, you know. As we've, you know, we all talk about this, that Jews tend to move towards one another in times of crisis. And in this case, we're required to connect from a distance. How have you seen that working so far? I know, Mark, we've got some um, initiatives at CJP that we're, you know, excited about and it's new. Um, yeah. How, how do you see this changing and growing now? Well, maybe I'll throw out a couple of things. And again, I think our two our two contexts are different because Amy mm -hmm. is providing direct service and yeah. um, you know connecting from a distance. I imagine feels even more like an oxymoron in in her environment than it does in ours. Uh, look, I will say um, 
there are ways in which the distance connecting, I think about Zoom meetings, for example, on Zoom calls, are forcing us to get better at what we do. I think, um, at least my experience has been, you have to do things with a greater degree of intentionality. I think we're more disciplined and mindful because we're in a crisis of how we use our time and one another's time. I think people are going out of their way, actually, to reach out and check in on one another because we're mindful of the distance. And, and honestly, you could walk past someone every single day and forget to ask how they're doing. And there's a way, actually, in which, because we're all at home, this is pulling our humanity into our work in ways that we wouldn't always. It's, you know, it's not always the case that I could be on a, in a meeting with people and one of my kids can run into the room, which just immediately kind of humanizes me. Um, with staff and or, or, or others who just may not see that side of me. So I think there are positive, powerful sides to this connection. It's still early. Um, and I guess my hope is that what we'll do is we'll learn from those as we go and, and bring some of those back into our work when we do get through this, which we will, by the way, at some point get through this. So I'm not sure this is answering the question as much as, but it's kind of the best I can come up with right now. Go for it. So what I would say is, um, during this period, it reinforces and makes us even more zealous about the concept that people should age in community with the right kind of staff support and, and the foundation of loving kindness. Because even though we feel sad when someone we call tells us they feel lonely because they're not seeing us, we know they're getting calls every day. We know that we're providing food. We know that we're providing for their basic needs and that we're helping them sort through all the information that's flying at us at, at alarming rates and navigating it for people and helping them get what they need. And even though it's not ideal that we can't do it in person, I know it's, it's a very different experience to be in one of our buildings than it is to be home alone. And I shudder at what that's like. And remember that 25% of the baby boomers are going to have age never having had children. So think about what that would be like and why being in a building where you have people who care about you and have you on a list to worry about you, how different that feels. So I think it's just reinforced for me the urgency of making sure every older adult has the opportunity to age in community. You know, I'm I'm blessed in that I live with my um, 88-year-old grandmother who's turning 89, God willing, uh, in the beginning of April. So, um, and this is something this whole experience has brought home to me because we're doing social distancing within our house um, because we're both, I'm immunocompromised and, and she is as well. So I've been blessed to be able to help her as best I can through this situation. And it is deeply upsetting to think about people like her who do not live with someone. And, and I think that's really brought home to me the importance of what you're doing and how vital it is. And I, I really wanted just to express that because I'm, I'm witnessing a small, small window into what that must be like. So thank you. Thank you. No, I, I think it's absolutely critical. And if you look at the demographic polls that we're going to see, um, we just got to get ahead of this and get ahead of this fast. Yeah. So one of the themes that I've been seeing a lot, you know, there are people on the front lines who are working every day and, you know, from the people who are delivering everyone food to the people who are delivering Amazon packages that are keeping everyone going to those in healthcare. And, you know, these people are, are, are heroes, you know, we don't think about the UPS driver and the, you know, the Amazon fulfillment center as heroes in them, but these are people who are keeping us going for those of us who are doing what we're supposed to do and staying home to flatten the curve. 
there is this feeling of helplessness when you read the news and you say, you know, what, what can I do besides sit here? Um, and I'm wondering, from the perspective of CEOs of, of your respective organizations, do you have recommendations for ways that individuals who are motivated to help, and there are a lot of them, um, ways in which they can help the people who are really struggling right now? So we have a special website we set up called volunteer at twolifecommunities.org. And we connect people with volunteer opportunities. Um, one of the favorite things we're doing is connecting people to make these friendly phone calls for, for the people who on the set of other calls said, yeah, I, I welcome um, other people calling. So we have that happening. We have um, people who can help run food up to people's apartments. And we will have protective equipment. And you don't, unfortunately, actually get close to them. But we running food and running supplies up and around and helping take the orders for, you know, I want more meals, I want less meals, I wish I could have this. Um, we have convenience stores at all of our sites and we can use some help stocking them, you know, if you want to drop off things that we need or actually monitor, being there and manning the store. Uh, those kind of things um, we can certainly offer. But I would say independent of our organization, I think Mark said it earlier, and it's really important that Call people, ask them how they're doing. Um, you know, a few people have sent me these just amazing notes, and it just in the in the middle of the craziness, I stop and I say, "Wow, you know, that's not really nice." Um, so I think those human expressions are really important. But certainly, volunteer at twolifecommunities.org. Uh, we can put you to work in a really safe and helpful way. Wonderful. Uh, we can definitely put that in the show notes. So everyone, check out the show notes for that link. And let's, uh, if it's not already there, let's make sure that's on jewishboston.com. I'm really grateful to our colleagues who have kind of quickly um, in, built a platform on that site um, that is a coronavirus resource platform, which is in part there to help those who are vulnerable to access resources that they may need, such as the, the CJP warm line um, or, or others. But they are also uh, to help those who want to do something and connect to do to do so, and whether that's also to learn or to access other um, kind of creative ways of being in community. I would just I'd underscore what Amy said and say, um, let's not forget that in a time of kind of uh, social distancing, that reaching out and uh, expressions of humanity are a form of spiritual resistance. Oh. And um, it is, you know, it, you never know how you're going to wake up. You never know how the person you know, on the other side of the phone is going to wake up and it can feel fine one day and it just wears on you. And I think especially as this goes on, and it is going to go on for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, I do think our kind of humanity and our basic relationships are going to be tested. So, you know, I think there's no question exercising that muscle day in and day out, whether that's a family member, obviously, whether it's a formal volunteer activity with Two Life or another organization, um, a show of appreciation and gratitude to people who are working so hard. This is a time that calls for um, gratitude. I know that we have some actually CJP young adult volunteers who I think are putting together a kind of gratitude network to, to help people volunteer. This is just a time for that. And the other thing I would say is that let's also remember that taking care of ourselves, it does start at home. Personal wellness, learning, um, keeping our minds, our bodies sharp. Um, if, if we're living with other people around us, I mean, all the more so. Um, and, uh, you know, when we emerge from this, like we would like to emerge, you know, as whole, if not wholer 
um, in every way um, ready to re-engage um, in, uh, you know, in, in the normal social communal ways. Um, and that's on every one of us, I think, day in and day out to take care of ourselves and to stay connected to one another. So I want to talk a little bit about Passover which is right around the corner. Passover is thematically perhaps appropriate as holidays go for what's happening right now. When I think about the Passover story, it's very literally about plagues, but it's also about a sense of captivity. Um, The Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, means a narrow place. I know I've certainly felt trapped in this moment, in this this narrow place, but there's a sense of, of being uh, frozen here and setting aside that view, the metaphorical view of this holiday for many Jews, Passover is for some the most important physical gathering of the year when they have their families at home with them. How do you see the Jewish community finding ways to navigate around that fact right now that we simply can't gather together to observe this holiday? Amy, what are you doing? What are you doing for Passover? How are you thinking about this? At our, at our at our houses and our campuses, well, we canceled our Seder. Um, you know, to be honest, it's it's a week away and we haven't figured out that one yet. I'll be perfect. Mm. Sorry, I don't think the Israelites were prepared to leave Egypt even 24 hours before they left. So you have time. Um, yeah, I, look, I would say, um, you know, it's funny. The extended Baker family does Passover on whatever Saturday night is closest to the theaters because it's most convenient for people. And I just saw an email uh, from the cousin saying, maybe we'll do it on the real night this week because we're going to be virtual anyway. Um, so, in, you know, in, in, I think for some people, actually, ironically, uh, the virtual theater is really going to be a powerful innovation in bringing them together, not physically, but um, spiritually, and we should celebrate the fact that people are already thinking about virtual theaters, that rabbis, even in some more traditional communities, are already allowing for the use of technology, for sure, for people who are isolated and at risk, which is such a hopeful statement that uh, life, you know, comes before uh, the letter of the law, again, especially for our most vulnerable and at-risk people. Um, gives me kind of faith um, in our spiritual leaders as well. Uh, But I think virtual coming together. The other thing I would remind us is, um, you know, Passover isn't just about Seder night, even though that's what it is for so many people. You know, it's preparation, it's learning, it's connection, it's conversation. And maybe we think about starting tomorrow all the way through, you know, over these next couple of weeks, which conversations I'm going to have. And we're doing a staff Seder virtually, you know, this week. Like, you know, how can I begin the process of coming out of Egypt metaphorically um, over what is not a one-night experience. Over many, I mean, we are, in our tradition, Passover is one of the things that you remind yourself of every single day. Our traditions are supposed to remember Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the coming out of Egypt twice a day, actually. And I think that's partly because uh, we understand that this is a long process. It's a lifelong process. So on JewishBoston.com, we do 
have a calendar that's now populated by an ever-growing number of virtual online events, including Seders. We have a guide to doing a virtual Seder, um, a downloadable Haggadah that you can just have on your tablet or your phone or whatever. But uh, these events have been really amazing to see come in. Um, They include everything from Shabbat services to film screenings, learning opportunities. And it's been so inspiring to see how quickly um, organizations have been able to pivot to operating in this virtual space. So what are you both hearing um, about these virtual, often multi-generational gatherings, quote unquote gatherings, that are now taking place in the community? You know, for for many of our folks, that's actually just not something that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I will remind you that um, the median household income for our portfolio is $10,683 a year. Um, they're not able to afford always to have computers. And unfortunately, we had to close our computer centers because they were virus transmittal sites. So um, we, uh, we did, as I mentioned, we gave people a video for doing the exercise and some of our other programs on video. But I have to be honest, it's not... It's not a huge amount of uptake of that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what a humbling reminder that we're living at a time where, you know, connectedness is a privilege. Yeah. You know, you can't even walk over to your next door neighbor or, you know, your great aunt. Um, and that is a really, really important reminder. By the way, the Seder reminds us about privilege at the very beginning when it says, let all who are hungry come and eat. And we are supposed to give tzedakah before Passover uh, in order to make sure that anyone who needs it can have a Passover Seder. I think that kind of awareness um, of privilege and the responsibility that comes with that is built into the way the rabbis wanted us to celebrate this. Amy, you just made me think of a new kind of privilege, which is kind of the privilege of technology, um, you know, in a now mandated virtual world and makes me think about maybe the, the... the tzedakah of this year is that phone call to the person who may not be able to connect this year for Seder. You know, we, we end the Seder with what I think is, you know, a very powerful and affirmative statement of the strength of Jewish community. We say next year in Jerusalem. When you think about Passover in 2021 in greater Boston's Jewish community and beyond, what gives you hope about what you're seeing now and how we might come out of this? I think, I think we've touched on it a little bit. I mean, the, the way people are rising and supporting each other and supporting us, I mean, we have lots of people calling and saying, what can I do? How can I help? Where can I be useful? And um, I think this has sort of taught us all, which we knew, is we're all connected, right? I mean, we are connected with someone in Wuhan, China, and in South Korea, and, you know, it's, we are all one, and the world is very, very small, um, and we need each other, and so we need each other in really positive ways, and we have to take care of each other. I think we're all becoming extraordinarily clear about the importance of connection and purpose and community. Amen. I would say, uh, you know, CJP very quickly uh, after this whole thing started to unfold, realized that the needs that we were going to see in this community um, were going to grow exponentially. Um, We opened an emergency fund and within days it hit a million dollars. And we were able to give 
I think we've already put half of that out to the community, some of which do like communities and to others. We wish it was more and we wish it were faster. But, um, you know, that's not our money. That's the community stepping up. I mean, we're just a vehicle. And, you know, the power of the collective and of a kind of just the, the age old notion that, like, if I want to do something and I feel part of something larger than myself, I find a way to give and trust that it will get where it needs to go. Um, I really do feel like that is primal. It's deeply Jewish and it's deeply human. Um, and I will say the other thing that gives me hope, um, honestly, Amy, you give me hope. Two Life Communities gives me hope. If we didn't have a Two Life Communities the day before this crisis, we would be so much more uh, impoverished today in terms of human dignity and community um, and the work this community has done to build a foundation um, of care and of inclusion and of dignity and of connection that we can, you know, the foundation upon which we can, to the degree that we are able to weather this crisis, um, really gives me hope that we'll come through this on the other side um, and just build, you know, an even stronger, more vibrant community. Well, Amy and Mark, thank you both for being with us today and taking time to talk to us about what's going on and what you're both doing in the community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. For coronavirus community resources, visit jewishboston.com slash coronavirus. For more information about CJP and Two Life Communities, check out our show notes. And be sure to follow at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan. Ryan.